0: Okay. Hey, I was going to say, I <laughs> I want you to know that I was sitting here going, just wait for this. I'm just going to be like, welcome to Theology Thursday, and I'm just going to blow right past not welcome saying Welcome okay. to Theology
1: Thursday. It's Thursday and night. I'm so gonna, glad you're joining us this evening. You know what's
0: low-key offensive to me is the your imitation of me saying okay yeah well no i, I that, <laughs> you know what's even
1: <laughs> more startling than that is it's spot on man
0: okay you know what i'm gonna do
1: <laughs> somebody who's good at this could somebody who's good at this get
0: like a bunch of clips of me saying okay from the beginning of theology thursday and then keep cutting isaac into the middle of it his version so we can kind of go back compare yeah hello yep. everybody ryan ziber how's it going good to see you greetings and salutations from the dinner tray nice Michelle Barajas, the the and Julian, all snuggled up and ready to hear the word. Um, thank you guys all for Ruth, being here.
1: Luis, Ruth,
0: Joey, first. Jacob, first. That comment's like an hour old too, so so I approve. Welcome everybody. Hit this the is, like button. Hit the like as you know. As always. We're going to do our Q&A for our kind of like spirit world, angels, demons, Satan, all that stuff. We got a bunch of good questions from you guys. Tons of good questions. Before Thanks for the submitting huh? them. Yeah, thank you for emailing them in. And you can, of course, ask them in the chat as we go. But we want to talk about what we're doing
1: starting next week because yeah. we're starting a new series. We've got a big, big guest. Who's our big guest next week? I'm trying to think of something that's semi-believable but not and played but i couldn't think of anybody on like time. nothing
0: nothing was n- like you didn't want to go like joel osteen yeah not quite on the, like <laughs> that but like yeah somewhere in between be, we got louis giglio yes on the podcast no we
1: got kevin curzonabe kevin curzonabe. on the ones and twos <laughs> can mixing we it the, in the background can we get
0: the applause button
1: kevin we should have kevin on as a guest he's on the ones and twos we could <laughs> crickets yeah <laughs> we just okay so we're going to be starting, how long is it going to be? Six, seven weeks? It's Yeah, six, seven, eight. We're not 100% sure. Next week we will have as a special guest, uh, author, pastor, Dan Kimball. Friend good, of the church. Good friend to the church. Um, has written a book that we've mentioned already a few times on the show, How Not to Read the Bible. Yeah, uh, It's a great book. You said, Sam, for the issues it's talking about is probably the best book you could recommend for it.
0: Absolutely, I'm gonna be, this is a book, and I'm gonna talk about this a lot for the whole series because we're kind of basing the series around this book. Um, This book, I am going to be buying for people and recommending to people countless times for the next however many years. And I'm gonna
1: work out a little deal. Well, for every book you sell, (laughs) Dan Kimball got to give 10% commission. I get five,
0: you get five. That's called fair. Every book that I get, Every book that I buy of Dan's book, you get 5% from?
1: Yes, that's that's the way it works. Okay. Okay. Uh, the system is rigged. The system is. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. That's, um, that's what we're really here to talk about tonight. So yeah, Dan will be on next week and we'll use that as an introduction, like a kickoff. And then every week after that, we'll tackle one of the hard issues that Dan is wrestling with in the book and kind of break it down and get into the nitty gritty, as, as Nacho Libre said.
0: It's a book that deals with things in the Bible that are are painful or difficult to reconcile the kind of things that make people go like, I don't know if I even want to be a part of anything about a book like this. So, you know, is the Bible anti-woman? Is the Bible hyper-violent? Is it pro-slavery? All these kinds of things.
1: Anti-shrimp, it's on the cover. That was on the cover, man. How could you worship a God who's anti-shrimp?
0: And quite frankly, if, if God was anti-shrimp for all time, I would have major... Yeah. Well, luckily you're saved by
1: grace. So it wasn't up to you. Otherwise you never get in. That's, that's true.
0: That's true. Yeah. So this is a book that is, is dealing with these. We'll talk more about it starting next week, but incredible book. If you want to be kind of following along with us, you could grab it, um, ahead of time and start reading. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to dive into it and kind of deal with all those issues. So be here next week for Dan. Now. Tonight, oh, Silas Quintero says Dan Kimball versus Michael Wiseman on Unbelievable podcast was a great listen. That's a great plug. Um, Unbelievable is one of my favorite podcasts. It's a British radio debate show between Christians and non-Christians, and Dan Kimball was on there, which is kind of like the top of the mountain as far as like nerd nerdy Christian podcasts in my yeah, mind. Yeah, we
1: actually we had this whole thing lined up, whereas clips of Justin like saying stuff and that we were fake responding to. We built a whole episode to try to start it off with the bang. Like we were somebody
0: dude, we should do that where it's me and you debating and Justin Briarley is moderating. moderating? (laughs) That'd
1: be awesome. So that
0: starts next week, Dan Kimball, and then a series on how not to read the Bible. So hope you guys dig that. Um, For tonight though, we want to wrap up our, Angels, Demons, and the Spirit World series. And so we've been talking, I and mean, we're not going to do any kind of a recap because I want to make sure we have plenty of time to get to the questions. A lot of questions. Um, but the other thing we would do we wanted to start with that Isaac talked about last week was um, and it's kind of a good way to wrap up the series actually, is is reading some quotes from the screw tape letters. Um and this is a C.S. Lewis fictional book where he's writing from the perspective of a kind of senior demon whose job it is to help other demons tempt human beings mm-hmm. so the format of the book is him writing letters to his nephew who's kind of like a newer rookie demon and he's trying to help him understand how best to basically how best to get his patient which is what he calls him yeah to go to hell when he dies that's the point is like how do you get this guy on the path to destruction and so there's incredible insights in that book as far as like the kinds of things that demons and the kind of evil, rebellious spiritual beings might be up to. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like we talked about in the series. It's not always the kind of things that we think of from horror movies and pop culture and stuff. Um, C.S. Lewis said, it's really interesting. He said, this book was the easiest book he's ever written and the least pleasant. Dang. So he was like, it was so easy, but it was so dark and horrible to kind of mentally go there. So I'm just gonna read a couple quotes that give you an idea of, of the kind of insights he had about what demons might be up to. This is a long one, but it's worth it. So hang in there. Um, and we should we'll have
1: like scary music behind this as you're, we should. It. And then you could be like in a little,
0: unfortunately the only <laughs> music we have <laughs> is the intro music, the crickets, the crickets and the
1: wah-wah. that <laughs> to ah,
0: get the patience. Screw to fall. tape. All right, here we go. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me i do not mean the church as we see her spread throughout all time and space and rooted in eternity terrible as an army with banners that i confess is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy but fortunately it's quite easy it's quite invisible to these humans all your patient sees is the half-finished sham gothic erection on the new building estate when he goes inside he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics mostly bad and in very small print when he gets to his pew and looks around him he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided so once again c.s lewis writes one paragraph and you're like yeah it's pretty good and so the point of that is is he's saying one of the best things you can do is use the lowercase c church, the visible church to kind of disillusion the Christian. Mm -hmm. Don't let him think about the church invisible spread across space and time, the entire world, um, unstoppable on, on, you know, progressing forward. Make him think about the people he goes to church with who he doesn't get along with. And the kind of the songs he doesn't like to sing. I mean, he talks about a hymnal and a liturgical book, which we don't do in our tradition, but our equivalent would be like, distract him, have him think about worship songs. He doesn't like, or like that. He doesn't like this one little thing that the speaker keeps like the modern
1: equivalent would be have him focus on the fact that the song they're singing is annoying. The pews are uncomfortable and the pastor is boring this Sunday. Yeah. Have him focus on all those things. And didn't
0: I see that guy sitting over there, acting rude to the person in front yeah. of them in the grocery store last week. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a good sample of what the book is like, cause it's a warning to like, Hey, when you're in the church and you're nitpicking a million little things that you are blind to the church invisible mm-hmm. that you are standing as a part of in that moment. Yeah.
1: Unstoppable force has grown for 2000 years. Every tribe tongue and nation is slowly, but surely confessing the name of Jesus.
0: Awesome. Here's a shorter one. And this one's, this one's super interesting. It says, keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. What does that make you think of? I mean, it's, it's almost like he's saying, don't let him be consistent in the basics like praying and going to church and reading his Bible. Make him think of the lofty unattainable spiritual.
1: Well, we've had, we've had tons of examples of this as pastors where people are like, Oh, that was such an amazing message, pastor. I'm so glad we need people who are going to be world changers. And I want to go and make sure the the hungry are yeah. fed and the, the slaves are freed and there's no more sex trafficking. It's like these super high lofty things, which are good. And it's like, have you prayed today? Yeah. Have you read your Bible this month? And it's like, uh, 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 yeah. And it's like, you're focusing on all these super lofty things when you're incredibly unfit to even begin to attempt to yeah. make a dent in those massive global evil problems. Yeah. And it's,
0: it's been a, 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 as I'm reading that quote, I'm going, that's been like the kind of thing that's definitely tripped me up, especially with prayer where I'll be like, I'll be so convicted about the fact that I'm not, you know, my prayer life isn't, you know, Charles Spurgeon famously is like, I have so much stressful and difficult things ahead of me. I can't possibly pray for less than two hours yeah. today. And you're like, well, humble brag. It's a humble brag Spurgeon. Maybe. but Little, <laughs> But for me, it's, you know, there's a, there's a, like a desire to be this kind of, I'm the ascetic monk who goes into the wilderness for four hours kind of thing. But I'm like, that discouragement could make, could distract me from making sure I'm praying for 10 minutes today. Yeah.
1: Were you nice to your wife today? How about you start there? Um, or the kind of classic Jordan Peterson line is like, did you make your bed today? How how about you start with making your bed and cleaning your room before you think you can fix the chaos of the world, try and be faithful in the small thing. And that's where it runs into the biblical principle of like, be faithful in the small things. And then God will give you something bigger that you can prove yourself faithful to. But, and most of the time that's rooted in just our own kind of romanticized ideal version of ourselves. Like we're the, we're the next wilberforce like really really you think that but well maybe but it took decades for him to get there yeah
0: yeah and maybe instead of thinking that you should be the one busting brothels in the dominican republic you start by donating 10 bucks a month to the organization that's working there yeah or how
1: about start stop watching all the movies that run off the same (laughs) spirit of, of evil and you know let's just do that
0: yeah and so it's a great example of what this book is like and why we recommend it so highly because it gives you these backwards insights where you're like, oh man, that's exactly what the kind of thing that happens to me. All right, um, let's do one more, yeah? And then we'll jump into questions. Yeah, one more, one more. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's a powerful quote. That's a famous quote from this book too. Yep, It's a favorite of Kevin's, I happen to know. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. And the idea here, again, it's almost like the opposite of what we just said, the, the, Like in the opposite direction, that you don't just have to be concerned with, am I doing a giant signpost to hell yeah. sin? It's, what does your life cumulatively what direction does that lead? Yeah. And the, you know, the kind of like stereotypical, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not, it's not like I'm like killing people or like, you know, whatever you fill in the gap of the horrible sin you're doing. But the point is there could be plenty of little things that are contributing to a path away from God, away from the life. Pretty powerful. He's good. Obsessive Gardener says, I prayed today and told my wife, I love her. Room is a huge mess though. (laughs) yeah the i don't think the jordan peterson quote has to be taken literally necessarily although you probably should clean your room i don't know my room's a mess though you got little kids right obsessive gardener if it's this late
1: if it's this late it's already sundown yeah you give it up go go to the next day yeah wait till tomorrow
0: yeah you know on the prayer thing last thing on that is i I think a lot of the time about how i have these like imaginary goals of how i'd like my prayer life to be Mm -hmm. and then i'll sometimes stop and challenge myself and be like was the prayer I just prayed before I put my daughter in her crib sincere? Mm-hmm. Like I prayed, I prayed in that moment with her and she's learning to pray and I'm praying, but did I even, was I actually communicating with God within the presence of my daughter or was that little prayer? Like I just kind of wrote, you know, yeah. off the head, just getting it done so I can go downstairs and sit on the couch mm-hmm. finally kind of a thing. So it's that same, that principle of faithful and small things. And, and, um, Again, I don't think the point of this conversation or Screwtape Letters in general is to get us jumping at shadows and seeing demons behind yeah. every doorway, but more just to think, what are the things in your life that you are blind to that might be actually contributing to a negative trajectory in your spiritual life that aren't mm-hmm. obvious? So the obsessive gardener says, I have a four-year-old, pray for us. Hey, I will pray for you. Um, I have a three-year-old, Isaac Scott. I got four of them. He's got it. Isaac Scott. I a have a four-year-old. I got four of them. I just got a zero-year-old, a three-year-old, a
1: five-year-old, a seven-year-old. Yeah, there's just a tribe now. Just a tribe. Brutal. All right, let's get into some questions. Yeah, good questions, everyone. Thank you for submitting them.
0: Yeah, ex- excellent questions. So and, uh, as we go- We don't even
1: have time to probably get to all of them. Probably not. No, we'll try to be brief
0: um, when we can be, but- as you as we're going, if you have follow-ups or other things you wanna you wanna ask, go ahead and throw them in there and we'll get to them. Send them to Kevin, man. Send them to Kevin. He'll send you a he promises to send you a long, detailed analysis email response. Yep. So Ellen Waddell, one of our kind of mainstays, she's here every Thursday. She asked. Please explain the difference between The Battle Belonging to the Lord and Ephesians 6.12. In
1: heavenly armor, Lord will enter the land. land. You guys know that the song? The battle belongs I to the Lord. I know Obsessive Gardner probably does because he seems like an OG Christian from back in the day, man. You know that Battle Belongs to
0: the Lord melody reminds me a little bit of the Mulan song. Um, yeah, it be does. be a it. man you... That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder yeah. who yeah, stole from who. D- Disney stole from... Uh, Disney stole from who wrote the battle who belongs <laughs> to the Lord. So, she's, so she says, what's the difference between the battle belonging to the Lord and Ephesians six twelve, which is that famous verse that says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers against the world, the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So she says, if the battle is in the Lord's hands, what are we to do? So the kind of question I think yeah. is, you know, what, with spiritual warfare, if the battle belongs to the Lord, what's, what's our job? And are we getting involved in something we shouldn't even be a part of?
1: Yeah, it's this is one of the the traits of scripture as a whole. And it's it's difficult for modern Western people to to understand because we're very much kind of black and white, binary. It's either this or that. But the scripture says things like, You've got to do anything for your salvation. You don't have to do a thing. It's a free gift. And then it'll say, you better work out your salvation with fear and trembling type, yeah. type of thing, and put those right up against each other. Likewise, it'll talk about and we we mentioned this last week. It'll talk about things being both in the peasant, past or pre, I, I combine past and present. Peasant, the present, the, the present, <laughs> in the like that they've already occurred and are yet to occur. Yeah. Um. And in a very similar way, the Bible will do that with agency. So God is the primary cause behind something, but He may use a tool. And sometimes the the tool is what's used in the scripture to describe what's occurring. And then oftentimes it's just directed at the primary cause. You talked about in a sermon on Exodus a long time ago, how modern people, I forget, maybe you might've used the word primary causes. Yeah. Um,
0: It's primary and secondary causes. So it's sort of the other example would be like God sending Babylon to punish Israel. So it's like, who's punishing Israel? Well, God is punishing Israel, but he's doing it. Who is showing up and, killing Israelites and breaking down the wall. It's a wicked nation. And God even says, Babylon's my stick with which I'm gonna strike Judah. And then the very next chapter he goes, but Babylon, because of your pride and saying, look Mm -hmm. at how great I've become, I'm gonna punish you for doing this. So there's there's definitely a tension here as far as like, you are held accountable for what you do and don't do. And yet God is always yeah. the the primary
1: cause. And, and the ancient mind had a much easier time with merging primary and, and secondary causes. And for the most part, even if they knew there was a second, third, fourth level kind of tier going on, most of the time it's, oh, God, God. Because yeah. he's. So why does it rain? Because God, God makes it rain. As a modern person, you might say, well, actually there's, you know, there's pre- precipitation and da, da, da. And it was like. Oh I believe that but God still makes it, makes it rain. So similarly the battle belongs to the Lord but the question remains is what what's the tool what other agencies agents are going to be used in that act. And so oftentimes it's the church or his people, my servant Israel. Yeah. God is doing it but it's also his servant Israel and the battle belongs to the Lord in that he is declaring and claiming that he will be victorious no matter what. He gets the glory. He's the power behind it. But whom he chooses to use his power through is still up to his sovereign decree. And that could be the church. That could be a bad guy. That could be Babylon. Yeah.
0: I mean, you think about, it's not, it's, it's not dissimilar to how Kings in the ancient world, like who conquers the other kingdom? Well, the King does, Yeah, but he might not even be there in person. Um, or even like you think of, of the way God has always worked with humanity since Genesis one, it's Mm -hmm. like God, God is going to have dominion over creation. The way He has chosen to do yeah. that is through human rulers. But sort of like your sermon from a couple of weeks mm. ago, it's like make no mistake about who's actually in charge of Earth. It's not Adam and Eve. Yeah. But they. But it's Adam's job to name the animals and yeah. work in the garden. So I think it's a it's a both and, um, and that's not a contradiction. Um, so th- this is an important concept too that when there can be tension without contradiction. Yeah. And that's frequently the case in the Bible that there's things that are have some sort of sense of being at odds with each other and there's some tension there but they're not dr- directly contradictory they're just you mm-hmm. have to learn to be comfortable with things that are like wow well, that's you know it's not a neat clean western way yeah. of thinking
1: so hopefully that helps there'll um, be a lot of leftover tension in a lot of the answers tonight
0: yeah that's true me and isaac were looking at the questions being like hey like two-thirds of these are just us going
1: i don't know so we're uh, gonna we're not gonna say that no that's just how we actually feel that's the. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Kevin said, and then I said, "Let me break it down for you, mate.
0: Yeah, Kevin, how do you feel? How do you feel about uh, that last question? How do you feel like that went? Crickets. <laughs> oh, that was a that was a slow pitch on my part. All right, Anna, Anne Marie, Llewellyn, my question is for clarification on the spiritual aspect of us humans. This is a very good question. At death, I presume our spiritual and physical halves are separated. What does the Bible say happens to us at that time? Our bodies are to be, to be renewed and reanimated with the second coming. But what happens to our spirit side until then? Is there an interim heaven and hell prior to the end, or are we just in limbo? What about unsaved souls, especially those from ancient pre-Jesus times? How are they redeemed? Great questions. What do you think? I mean, the, the first thing I want to say is that in the way that the Bible talks about a human person, um, it's not like a neat, clean and I don't think Anne-Marie meant this. Um, but just because this is a common misconception, Mm -hmm. it's not a neat, clean, you have a spiritual half and a physical half. Human beings are made to be an integrated whole. Mm -hmm. You are spiritual, including your physical body. It's spiritual. It's meant to be one thing. So, so she's right that when you, when your body dies, um, as you await resurrection at the end of time, the spiritual element of who you are is separated from your body. But I believe that's an unnatural state to be in and you're, and, there's a, in awaiting waiting of the reunion of body and spirit. Yeah. To be it's certainly not complete. Yeah. It's not like you're just a soul waiting for a new body to drive around in. That's, that's an unnatural separation. So, um, there's a couple different opinions on this. Um, and different traditions have gone different directions. Um, there's a, the soul sleep kind of theory, or I don't yeah. know if it's called a theory, but soul yeah. sleep is the idea that you are, um, after death, you will be unconscious until the resurrection. So for people um for Christians, you'll die and the next thing you'll be consciously yeah. aware of will be the resurrection. You
1: flash forward and it's judgment day, Jesus is judging the righteous and the wicked, and you're getting ready to receive your resurrected body. Which which would be great. Yeah, you just go to you die and you wake up and it's the end.
0: Yeah. I, I think there it's this is one of those things that's not very clear in scripture, but I have to say, in my opinion, I actually don't know what your opinion is on this, but in my opinion, the weight of what we do hear about. Well, the, by the way, this whole category is called the intermediate state mm-hmm. between death and resurrection, the intermediate state. Um, and I think what scriptural evidence there is points to consciousness during the intermediate state.
1: Yeah, you have, there's a couple. David loses a child. He stops fasting and he says, my, my child is with the Lord. Um, Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be yeah, present with to the be, Lord. That's the key is to be present with the Lord. So Jesus tells the thief be, on the cross today, you today you will be with, me, be in with me in paradise. So one could argue and they certainly do in the soul sleep position that, well, you're with them, but you're still sleeping. Like, yeah. like a child is with mom and dad in their arms, like asleep and they're rocking them. So, but it, if you, if you look at those verses, they definitely lean towards a, a conscious awareness. That's, that's something more than just sleep. And that would be the position that I would hold is that you have some form of consciousness in the presence of the Lord awaiting that final day. But then it's like, well, what does that look like? I don't, I don't know. And what does time look like for that matter? I don't know. Yeah. And everything we have that talks like describes that state
0: is all either a parable or apocalyptic. Um, so you have the parable of Lazarus and the rich man where there's consciousness and they're communicating. Uh, between, yeah. between the place of the righteous dead and the place of the unrighteous dead. Yeah. Um, but that's a parable. So you're not necessarily supposed to assume that you're hearing like an actual exactly. description of the afterlife. Exactly. Similarly, you have um, in Revelation, you have the souls of the martyred Christians who are yeah. beseeching God and saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long do we have to mm-hmm. wait before you finish this? But again, that, that, um, the idea of the souls of martyrs crying out for justice does not have to mean that they're actually consciously doing that right yeah. now so the again the answer is basically it's unclear but i would say and it sounds like you agree yeah
1: and and a big chunk of the christian tradition so whenever yeah. what's so it's helpful is yes. whenever the bible it's like you're reading it and you're saying ah, I, I i'm 70 percent sure soul sleep is wrong but i'm not willing to throw it out what you do is you look at christian history and see how have the majority of people from different cultures different time periods different languages different backgrounds how have they seen these scriptures and the vast, vast majority believe in the in the the intermediate state being a place of consciousness where you are with God in his presence, aware of what's going Awaiting on. Awaiting resurrection. Um, there are there are people that don't hold that to certain branches, but it, it's a minority position.
0: Yeah, maybe, you know what? Uh, this is out of sequence from what I planned, but maybe we could just tag on a question from Susan Mister that's related to this. Okay. Um, although this, and this is going to be a really short one, but she, she asked... Um, when we are in heaven, and by, the, by heaven, um, she means the intermediate state. You can tell by context. Can we still pray for loved ones on earth to be saved? Say it again. While we're in heaven, when we die and are in heaven, can we still pray for loved ones on earth to be saved?
1: Okay. There is next to nothing as far as discussion in the Bible about that. The closest thing you have is what Sam already mentioned is you have Christians who have suffered death because of the gospel. So they're martyrs and they're crying out because of the injustice. Um, That's that's it. Now there's nothing in the scriptures that would say no to that, but there's nothing in the scriptures that would make us think that that's something that they would be doing. And certainly at minimum, There might be an activity that is analogous to earthly prayer. But when to die is to be in the presence of the Lord. If you're in the presence of the Lord, you're not praying to him in the the same sense that we are down here, praying to the Father through the mediator of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. So it's a different, it's a whole different game. And so I would say that if there is some type of intercession taking place, it's not what prayer would look like as we know it.
0: Yeah, and broadly speaking, I mean, the intermediate state, sort of like angels and demons, frankly, is one of those things that people are really curious about and would really like to know more about. And the Bible is almost silent about it, yeah. and that's not an accident. So N.T. Wright talks about how he's like, we don't know, yeah. and we are not, It's we don't know because we are not supposed to know, or else he would have told us. So there's, yeah. you know, we, we're doing our best to kind of extrapolate off of vague verses, but this is not something to to obsess over because the Bible didn't give you a bunch of detail about it. And Um, if it
1: wanted you to ponder that it would have given you the roads in which you can walk to, to ponder. Yeah.
0: So there's some sense in which we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses Mm -hmm. as the author of Hebrews says, but what does that actually mean? Like, is it just our knowledge and memory of them that inspires Mm -hmm. us or are we actually being observed by all of the Christians and faithful who came before us? We just don't know. Um, Jacob asked an interesting question, which is, what about the dead who are not in Christ? What is their intermediate state? And, um, they, live in, they live in California.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, that's hell. That's the fine. That's, oh the, yeah, final that's the, The um, no, they, uh, th- it's not, again, th- it's not clear, but it's interesting that, um, in old Testament thought and in Jewish thought, there were not two separate places for the dead mm-hmm. to go. There wasn't like good people go up and bad people go down. That's a much later idea. And it's not specifically jewish at least not in the old testament period um as always correct me if i'm wrong well i would say
1: it, it definitely you definitely start to see that it's it's underdeveloped at least in the torah and the books preceding that yeah or, or, or following that And in the inter- but by the time you period. get to, to daniel uh even isaiah major prophets there's something developing then more than just so job is one of the earliest books to be written and, and in job it's sort of like there's sheol the place of the dead yeah and, that's and he all straight you up says know. he's
0: like the good and the bad and the dog all go to yeah. the same yeah but
1: then what's interesting is you have hints uh for instance in genesis the idea of the place of burial for jacob's bones is important yeah. it has to be in israel and, and why is that important and what it, what's the logical connection to the afterlife so I would say that you don't get an explicit doctrine of life after death with good, good heavens. Yeah. Place. But you have hints at it and then it begins to really emerge in the prophets and then in the books surrounding the exile and subsequent to that.
0: But specifically the reason the intermediate state is so underemphasized is because Jewish hope is not about the intermediate state. It's about resurrection. So it's the idea is God is going in that again, even in Job, it's my redeemer lives and I will stand again upon the earth is the expectation. So there's a, um, there's an expectation that you will die, but, but God's people will live again. Mm -hmm. Um, and not every stream of Judaism had the same
1: ideas about it at the same times, but the yeah, of, so like the, the Sadducees didn't believe in physical, yeah. but for the for the majority. So one of the most interesting books that demonstrates this is, it's not in the Bible, but it's, it's the book of 1 Maccabees. And it's a book that isn't inspired scripture, but it's a really good take at something that was taking place historically from the Jewish lens. And this is the, the book that surrounds Hanukkah and all of that stuff. But in that, there's a portion where a mother is brought before Antiochus Epiphanes and she has seven sons. And they're all kind of, it's, it's a brutal book. They all get tortured and killed in front of their, their mother. But it's like then Antiochus f- fries a pan and he puts a, you know, it's just horrific deaths type of thing. But as they're suffering for their faith, they're kind of telling the king, like whatever you do to this body isn't going mm. to matter because the God of Israel will raise me up and give me a new body. Wow. So what's really important about that is that as their bodies were, as they were being killed, their hope wasn't, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be with Yahweh, Floating the God of and Israel. Cloud. Although they might have held to that. And I think they certainly did. But their hope was very earthly. It was very physical. It was very material. The hope was a physical resurrected body that's given back. to It was, it was improperly taken. And if God is just, then he will return that to yeah.
0: them. Yeah. And that's the, that's the Christian hope too, that unfortunately for many streams of evangelicalism have been lost but it's the story starts with the dwelling place of god being with man in the garden and it ends at the end of revelation behold the dwelling place of god is with man and it's on earth
1: and and why paul says you have to believe in the resurrection a physical resurrection Mm -hmm. because that is the hope it speaks to the very character of God. It, it won't be fair or just if God just has all the physical stuff. He made a wonderful, beautiful world that was material. It wasn't just spiritual, it was a material world. And for him just to, ah, it didn't work out. That would speak to the character of God. So for the ancient Jewish people, they had a hope and belief that God was fair. And if there's all this injustice happening, what would a fair and just God do? Mm. He would restore. And ultimately for the Christian, the first fruit of that is the resurrection of Jesus. Awesome.
0: Man, that's pretty good right there. That'll preach. All right. Jackie Brown, when you read from the book of Enoch, episode one or two in the series, was it written by the same Enoch who God zapped into heaven Elijah style? I (laughs) love, by the way, I just love that. Got some good Bible knowledge. That is good Bible knowledge. And it's like, that's like the message version. Like, and then God zapped him into heaven Elijah style.
1: That's really good. That's good.
0: So um and then she puts the verse reference which is from Genesis 5 um and the short answer is no the book was not written by Enoch the longer answer would be um that is the character who is being presented as the author some the dude
1: story. thousands of years after Enoch pretended to be Enoch and wrote that
0: and there's tons of books like that they're called yeah. pseudepigraphal books and pseudepigraphal books are books that claim, and, and there's some for much later, like there's early church history stuff. There's yeah, all that stuff. There's by, an
1: apocalypse of Abraham. There's yeah. gospels of to so-and-so. Other
0: Solomonic stuff that yeah. claims to be written and, by Solomon.
1: And they just didn't have a, so when people reading the book of Enoch, they were like, well, who's this guy who's pretending to be Enoch? Like the, the standards of plagiarism and how we work today was much different. So when they approached that, they weren't taking it as, well, we need to know if Enoch really wrote this. They were, they were reading it as literature. Although, yeah. n- although the the church and the Jewish canon never had the, the, the book of Enoch in it. So they didn't believe it was inspired scripture, but they didn't have a problem with some dude pretending to be Enoch.
0: Yeah. And the, and the whole idea is this is supposed to be a story about Enoch from his perspective. Yeah. Um, And so, so yeah, it's a very, very interesting and strange book. It's not super easy to read. It's not like you can sit down and read it as a fun thing, but yeah, supposed to be Enoch. Definitely not. Definitely not Enoch. No way. Way, 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 way later. I mean, it was this was written after the old Testament was finished. So we're talking about and Enoch is like Jackie said, Genesis five. Um, another question from Jackie. It was discussed that the Satan was probably a seraphim in Eden while scheming against, well, she says whilst, which I like whilst scheming against mankind. She just used zapped. Zapped right? and whilst back to back. Man. Good job Jackie Brown. Yeah. Um whilst scheming against mankind due to his serpent appearance, etc. But then why does Ezekiel 28 mention that he may be a cherubim? So um again we can be pretty brief here. The there's the short version is that there's no text that explicitly says that Satan was a seraph. Um there's, that's just kind of implied, again, by the snake-like appearance. There's a thing in Isaiah that kind of talks about how when the king of Babylon dies, don't think that the kind of spirit of this yeah. archetype is gone because another flying snake is coming. Yeah,
1: the point is that the Nahash, the serpent in Hebrew, that image can invoke a serpent-like fiery being. Also, there's these spiritual beings called seraphim that we appear in the scriptures that are also... Doing this same sort of serpent-like fiery being, yeah, and so there might be a conceptual connection there, but it never explicitly says, as you said, Satan is this category, yeah. Of the the other thing too is the the biblical authors may be using those categories lightly,
0: yeah, or to some extent overlappingly or inter not interchangeably, but with some overlap, because both cherubim and seraphim are kind of these throne guardian multi-animal mashup kind of beings with six wings and they're like they're not exactly the same but they're these weird hodgepodge animal looking spiritual yeah and one might what we
1: we, because we don't we don't have like the, the dictionary definitions of it but one might be dealing with the nature of a being the other one with a vocation so you might have something that's called a seraphim but when a seraphim is positioned before the temple of god guarding the presence now it's a cherubim it's it's what it is is yeah. this and now it's functioning in a job description as this and unfortunately we just don't we don't have those but the point of what we are doing in weeks one and two is trying to demonstrate how there's this diverse world of spiritual beings yeah and we don't know exactly how they all function but there appears to be some level of hierarchy certain ones have more responsibility we talked in the Daniel passage there's a ruler of Persia, he gets Michael caught off guard. Yeah. Michael appears Michael to be, is
0: an archangel. He's the only one mentioned in scripture Yeah. And
1: in, in the book of Jude, second to last book of the Bible, he appears to be a, a pretty important dude. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's complicated and those categories aren't clear. Yeah, and if, and for the
0: specifically for this question, Seraphim and Cherubim, what we do know about them is that they are very similar. They're both kind of in the presence of God. They're they're the beings that like carry the chariot of God and some of the visions, God flies on a cherubim in one prophetic vision. So they're kind of, they're very close to God and associated with his presence in his throne room. Um, and it's really interesting. This is not the Bible. It's just kind of weird and interesting, but in the, um, the like really mystical intertestamental Judaism where they had actual hierarchies of angelic beings. And then later in mystical Christian church tradition, um, cherubim and seraphim like always rank really, really high in the kind of like, you know, the like bestiaries of (laughs) of angelic beings, which again, that's not the Bible. That could just be people getting weird. Who knows? But it is interesting. Um, so great question. Super interesting. Um, all right. You ready to get super, super nerdy with one? Maybe. (laughs) I'm very, very confident. All right. This is from Keith Riddle. Um, Okay,
1: for Keith, I'll do it, man.
0: Because we love Keith. And Keith is a smart, this question is going to make it very clear to you. But Keith is a smart guy who is well-read and studies scripture, knows his stuff. Um, He says, in Deuteronomy 18.11 and Leviticus 20, verse 6, let's read one of those at least. Kim, you want to bring up my screen? Deuteronomy 18.11. We'll just go look at it so we know what we're talking about. We'll start at 10. There shall not be found among you. This is during, this is in the law section of the Old Testament, so um, these are laws for Israel. There shall not be found among you, anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So that's the verse he's talking about in this list of evil magicians, sorcerers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that's mentioned is those who inquire of the dead. Do you go back to a normal screen, Kev? Um, so that I can get back to my, yeah, there we go. So I can get back to the question. Thanks. Um, so these verses speak of the medium and the spirits of the dead. Consulting with either is forbidden in Torah Isaiah eight nineteen 19 speaks of mediums and spiritists and says, should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? The conclusion I believe is that this is forbidden because it is real that's the key to the question he's saying what I what it seems to be to me is that the reason it's forbidden to communicate with the dead is because communicating with the dead is a real thing and the and the reality is that the spirits being called up are wicked and because it says the dead, I'm assuming it means human dead, not necessarily demons. I know this question's hard to follow, but we'll 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 mm-hmm. break it down so his questions are do you, do we agree with his conclusion that making contact with the dead was real and that the dead were human, not spiritual beings or demons. And then the follow-up question is, would this suggest that the dead wicked have knowledge of what is happening here on earth? Hey, you know, okay. we're out of time. We're gonna go. So, Thanks so first, <laughs>
1: first, yeah. One, when it refers to the dead, it most certainly is talking about human dead because there's no indication that spiritual beings died at the, at this point yeah. like there's no discussion of it. And dead.
0: for super nerdy reasons, um the he, the Hebrew word metim, dead, always 100% of the times it's used, refers it's talking to about humans. dead
1: humans. It's always about humans. Um so for sure when it's saying do not contact the dead, the intent of that is contact and I believe the human dead. Now that doesn't mean that the next logical point could be connected in that that means it poss- that that makes it possible that that's what's open for debate. Right. Um, and some people would take the, the line of reasoning that saying, no, God is forbidding that type of practice because when you do necromancy, you do occultic practices, um, you can conjure up some type of evil presence. It doesn't mean it's a dead human being, but you might get some demonic activity because they feed off of that stuff. And that's why God is saying like, don't do that stuff. Don't ever do it. Um, and so what we have to do is kind of look at the big picture of Scripture and say what what do we see occurring when we see these instances? And the bad news about that is it's so forbidden that we don't even get many instances of no. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's I I see his line of logic
0: that it's sort of like why is he forbidding this thing because it's real? And that's that. I mean, that's a very logical, plain reading connection. I agree that it's not. It, that doesn't necessitate the interpretation. Yeah, because
1: you, you could say, don't consult your future by looking at the stars. That's demonic activity. Right. But that doesn't mean that the stars can reveal your future. Right. It means that there's That's ancient a people. That's practice you don't do. Yes. Or you can say, do not practice tarot cards um, because there's... Uh, do not practice tarot cards not because like every time you flip out cards they can tell you about yourself it's more of just like there's some demonic stuff associated with that now that doesn't mean what Keith is saying is wrong it's just saying what does the majority of scripture say and I would say um, the majority of scripture would tell us that the dead do not have a way to communicate with here and again you mentioned a parable early on so it's just a parable so you can't draw theology from it but with the rich man and Lazarus the people who are in Abraham's bosom he longs to be able to go tell his brothers about the truth but it's like not that does that's not he says a
0: gulf has been placed between you cannot cross it you cannot cross it so at the very least if it's possible for a medium to make contact with the dead this is a unnatural demonic evil thing that is not a normal part of the dead human's yes. interaction with the humans. The only
1: curveball to this is the passage with Samuel and yeah the witch at the, witch at the fourth moon
0: of Endor. Endor. That's uh
1: There's a there's a bunch of Ewoks there.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's weird people don't know that Star Wars is actually set it's in histo- ancient historical, it's fiction. historical fiction. Yeah, so so that's a great point. There is a Oh, and just to answer um Luis Torres's question, what's the definition of human dead? All we mean by that is a dead human being, so the spiritual part of a human being after they have died. And Ed and Dina bless just brought up what you just brought up, which is that calling up the dead does happen in the Bible. Um, Saul calls Samuel spirit in 1 Samuel 28. So more specifically, Saul goes to consult a medium at a place called Endor side note. Um, did you know that? Oh man, I'm going to butcher this, but the TV show Bewitched. Remember that old timey show? It was basically I a dream of Jeannie, but just about a witch. Kevin
1: loved it. You liked it. Um, yeah, and then Silas just brought up the same story again. I learned about all the shows that Kevin used to watch because I watched them at Nick at Night. Like Kevin watched <laughs> Kevin watched him as, you know, a 3rd I'll tell you, you what, not I to- I watched him live. Not to flip yeah, that yeah, on both true. of you,
0: but like what I watched on Nick at Night was like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which was on that's when you were true. in-, in
1: uh, That's true.
0: So, um, but the reason I brought it up is because in Bewitched, the main witch, her mom, who's also a witch, her name's Endor, I'm almost certain. So g- somebody Googled that. Can you I'm fact concerned. check that fact Kevin check as we that. break down um, this Bible passage? So here's the thing. Um, that's hundred percent true that a, and her medium, father was
1: named Tatooine. Check that out. Too. See the, yeah, see,
0: see about that bewitched names he put. Oh boy. Um, so, okay. Maybe we should just look at for Samuel 28 after Kevin's done Googling. Um, but here's what I would say about that story. Um, it definitely happens that this medium at Endor is able to call up, um, Samuel, the prophet who is dead. However, um, and, and the, the scandal of that story is that all the mediums and necromancers have been sent out of the land by Saul because that's, it's against Jewish law. Yeah. But he is so desperate and so he's fallen so far at this point that he goes to consult a medium to try to get uh, good ideas out of Samuel. But the thing that happens in this story, um, and I want to read it to make sure I'm right about this, but the, the medium has a reaction to Samuel showing up Yes. that seems to demonstrate to me and that this is not she was not someone who was regularly able this to is make not contact normative. with the dead. So it's more like she's she's the kind of, you know, the fortune teller shyster who's pretending to be able to yeah. do this usually or maybe speaking to demonic beings who yeah. knows. But to actually talk to a dead person's spirit seems to be surprising to yes. her. So in Dora Joey Rivera says Endora is the witch mother of Samantha Stevens. Close enough that we're going to call that correct. It's just the feminine version. Well, Endora. In,
1: in the the witch version of, of English, they they gender. That's right. Their names. So there's so, Endor as a boy and Endora is and a girl. Her
0: grandfather was Endoro. Yeah, exactly. So okay, you want to pull up my, pull up the Bible here, Kev? Um, I'll show you what I'm talking about. So a couple interesting details. Um, so Saul shows up. The medium goes, uh, "Hey, you're not supposed to be doing this." And he goes, "Don't worry, you're not going to get in trouble." She doesn't know it's him at the time. Then the woman said, "Whom shall I bring up for you?" He said, "Bring up Samuel for me." When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. So this is a reaction of surprise. It's not like,
1: "Ooh, here comes!" Can the you, you, Kevin? Asked for. Can you look at the Hebrew word for cry out right there?
0: Yeah, I can. Kevin can't. Oh, I'm I can. sorry. Um, yeah, it's it's tazak, cry, call for help.
1: Okay. What's interesting is that's a um, that word is typically in the scriptures used more. Um, that's the same word that's used when the Israelites cry out for help in slavery and God mm. hears their cries. So there's a, um, it's not just like a surprise. It's like a surprise. That's like almost like, oh my God, Whoa, save what? Me.
0: And it's crazy because she, in that moment also becomes aware of who Saul is. And it's not explained why, but something about when Samuel appears, it says she knows who so? She goes. Why have you deceived me? Um, you're the king, Saul. Now I know I'm in trouble because. Yeah. He, and then he says, "Don't be afraid. What do you see?" And this is just a side note. Her answer is, "I see an Elohim mm. coming up out of the earth, a God, a, a spiritual, spiritual being. being." If you're following with the whole series, that's need that weeks word. one, two, and three for that man. So it's she says, "I see an Elohim coming up out of the earth." Um, and when I grew, when I was growing up in church, uh, the, it was taught to me at various times, like well, it was probably just a demon pretending to be Samuel because we know there's no such thing as ghosts or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's not at all how the story presents it. The, the, you have to really force that upon the text. Mm. The interaction that Saul has with, with Samuel's spirit sure seems to be Samuel. But um, I think if anything, again, it's not crystal clear, but I think if anything, this story is presenting this as an anomaly. This is not a normal thing to have happen. Samuel is not okay with it. Yeah. He's like, "What are you do? like, what are you doing? um and and Saul gets his kind of final yeah, like, you are done
1: and and it's not as if the witch at Endor did something that conjured up a dead person back right when she did what she did, and all of a sudden there's appearance of somebody, she's shocked yeah, so it might be that this is actually a judgment, meaning mm. Saul is doing something demonic that he shouldn't. And then God has an inbreaking, much like an inbreaking where you're, um, the disciples are able to see Moses and Elijah yeah. with Jesus. There's an inbreaking of the spiritual realm, and rather than the spiritual give give Saul what he wants, this is God's judgment type of thing. Yeah. So, so a couple of things for biblical interpretation is one, it's not crystal clear, but this one. Seems as if some some like Samuel might have showed yeah. up, but it's, this is not normative. There's no way to think this is normative from the witch's response, from the biblical text, and what happens subsequently in the story. So this would be one of those anomalies that are non normative that we should not try to replicate off of one passage. But it at least opens the door for keys yeah. under. So when so even though I might. I don't think necessarily that's right. It opens the door for Keith's interpretation to be right. And it yes. could be right. But I, I would say most likely this is a, a judgment of God. And it surprised everybody because this isn't the way the usual demonic stuff works.
0: And if you talk about the way like the Bible designs their stories, who is it whose job it is to tell Saul when he's gone too far and God is judging mm-hmm. him? It's always yes. Samuel. And so if you start from the beginning of the Saul story, Samuel is the guy who calls out, who calls out Saul, says the kingdom is being torn from you over and over again. So for him to show yeah. up at the end of Saul's story spiritually and pronounce the fi- this, you have truly gone too far. It's over for you. Has a yeah. really beautiful symmetry um, that matches with the style of, of biblical Old
1: Testament yes, narrative. exactly. So I would say to sum it up is that you should never, ever do this stuff. And when you do, there's a, a a chance that there might be some d- demonic activity. There's this strange story where actually God allows an inbreaking of something that's not a conjuring up of spirits, but actually God breaking through to pronounce judgment. Yeah. And even
0: when the great, the greatest judge and prophet in Israel at the time shows up, it's not good. This is not a good situation happening. I mean, Saul Saul finds out um, that this is what Samuel says to him. It's so creepy. First, he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing Mm -hmm. me up, which is weird. But then the line he says at the end of his judgment is Yahweh will give Israel with you into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. That's the last thing he says. So the judgment is you're going to die and end up exactly where I am, Mm -hmm. where I am. Um, and so, yeah, again, I think sometimes we ask questions that are not the questions that the text is trying to answer. That's something we talk about mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but in this case, I think you're meant to see, even after Samuel's death, the final word of judgment against Saul is going to be from Samuel because that's mm-hmm. the symmetrical, beautiful way to to wrap up the story. Beautiful mm-hmm. and tragic. Um, so, yeah, d- to answer your question, Silas, um, it's not... Samuel is not a, it's interesting that he's called an Elohim in this because there's no category for what he is, but he is, the, this is the, this is a dead human being. It's not the same thing as a spiritual being, good or evil. Um. It's the, it's the, it is a dead, good human. Um. But yeah, very, very strange story. And I think to your point, Isaac, the, the, the practical thing to emphasize again, is that the Bible forbids this. This is evil. 100% of the time
1: it's talked about
0: So the last thing it should ever inspire in anyone is like a curiosity
1: about it yeah you're not supposed to do it you're not supposed to do it
0: okay last one i think we have time for one more um oh janos Kavai. how about the transfiguration is that just because jesus can do whatever he wants you brought this up as well that that peter james and john were able to see on the top of this mountain jesus transfigured and standing there with moses and elijah
1: yeah and that's an inbreaking. Uh, it's like your eyes are open to something that what you would not normally be able to see. But that's 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 a different thing than conjuring up spirits. That's again God in His sovereign decree allowing some type of inbreaking to occur. Yeah. But it's not manipulated by earthly people to conjure up or try to. It's not like Peter and they're like, "How can we talk to Moses today?"
0: Yeah. And even to your to to be really specific about what you're saying, Jonas, it's not even that Jesus does that. The force that's at work there is the Father so that he can pronounce in the presence of the three disciples this is my son listen to him him." he's standing there with moses and elijah so it's jesus the law and the prophets Mm -hmm. and he says not them him so this so it's uh it's I, i think it's categorically different as as you indicated but specifically because god in heaven is revealing this is the voice of god from here on um pretty epic moment i once heard somebody say on twitter they're like obviously there's no way to prove this But could you imagine if Elijah's moment of seeing the glory of God on Mount Sinai and um, Moses's moment of seeing the back of God's glory on Mount Sinai and the moment of the transfiguration are like a, like a time warp of all of those things are happening Mm. at the same moment. Like when Moses sees God's glory, it's a wormhole where Moses seeing God's glory is him beholding the transfigured Jesus. Same with Elijah. And the disciples are there in the first century seeing
1: it happen. I'm like,
0: well, obviously, there's no way on earth to prove that, but that's pretty cool. That stuff
1: happens with uh, Ahsoka Tano in Star Wars <laughs> Rebels. She goes to this land, and the Palpatine's there, and it's, it's next level, man. So it's possible. It's just, that's why it's
0: possible. <laughs> I was just gonna say that it's awesome that Star Wars came up twice in such nerdy ways, but you you really threw me by ending with "so it's possible." Well, a lot <laughs> of people don't know about Rebels,
1: man. They skipped over that, but you know, if you want to understand Ahsoka, man one of the best star Wars characters of all time. You gotta, you gotta watch. It's that.
0: true. Some of us just dropped right into the Mandalorian and don't even know that they're witnessing a character with an entire canon behind her. Exactly,
1: exactly. And that's
0: the one thing we want you to take away today. So well, let's just really briefly do this last one. Um, it's yeah. already five till. I know dude, it flew by. We could have done another half hour on this cause we have other ones we're not even going to get to. Um, but just one last thing that comes up is, is the idea of guardian angels. Is there such a thing as a guardian angel? Do people have individual guardian
1: angels? It depends on who you are. <laughs> that might be true, actually. I, I probably don't. Uh, Kevin, you got one. He's raising his hand. Kevin, you got one? Kevin, give us your opinion on this, genuinely. No, I was waiting for a comment about me not having one. Hey, oh, yeah. Kevin, but Isaac gave you props, though. Look, Yeah, you, you could probably got a couple, man. So
0: guardian angels, there's it's interesting. That there's definitely teaching in the Bible that one of the roles of angels is to act on your behalf. So God uses angels, you know, Hebrews, God will command his angels concerning you. That mm. may be the Psalms one. Um, yeah. Hebrews is the one where it's, they're all ministering spirits. Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea that one of the things that angels do is on God's behalf, they help you. Yes. Um, so that's true. But the idea that each person has an assigned angel to them, I think is unlikely. There are two verses in the Bible that get used to, um, try to make that point point. one of them is um, I didn't write them down which I completely should have oh yeah I did Matthew 18 10 says Jesus is talking he says see that you do not despise one of these little ones meaning children for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven now straight up that's a weird verse I have no idea what that means yeah um, but there's that one and then there's a moment where Peter is in prison in Acts And Peter's rescued by an angel Mm -hmm. and he heads back to the place where all the Christians are and he knocks at the door. It's kind of, it's actually kind of a comedic moment. The servant hears that it's Peter and she doesn't even let him in. She's so excited. She just runs and tells everybody else. And their response to her is she thinks it's Peter, maybe it's his angel. Hmm. And so, um, because that, that genitive of possession is used in Greek that it's his angel. Yeah. People have drawn the conclusion that, well, that means everybody has their own angel. But there's a couple... Two
1: things. One yeah. is it could just mean Peter has an angel because Peter's a pretty important
0: yeah. dude. Or maybe even just in this particular situation, he has an angel.
1: He had one assigned to him for, for that week type of thing. I
0: mean, and an angel does come and rescue him from the yeah. prison he's in. Um,
1: so there's a chance that... So a couple things. One, it could be just Peter's be special. Two, he had some protection in those moments of, of trial. Three, um, it could this is important distinction between descriptive and prescriptive language in, in biblical interpretation. So the people believe that it's possibly his angel. So there might've been a sort of common folk belief in the first century that everyone had a guardian angel or that Peter did. But just because people had a common folk belief that there was guardian angels doesn't mean the scriptures support that idea. Yeah.
0: And that's really, that's why genre is so important. If Paul were writing in a letter and behold, Peter's angel is standing at the door.
1: Thank God the father for the angel he is assigned to you. Exactly.
0: But if it's Acts, which is a narrative, the author is just reporting what the people there said. They could be wrong. In fact, Acts is full of people saying things that aren't true. The Pharisees say stuff that's not true, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think there's not nearly enough biblical support to lead me to believe that each yeah. person has an assigned guardian angel. But on a really comforting note, and it's why I wanted this to be the last question, because we've spent a lot of time talking about demons and rebellious yeah. spiritual beings. The Bible is full of the teaching that that there are good spiritual beings that are working on God's side of yes. the battle and that are on your team. Yep. And that part of what they do is God sends them to help you. I mean, there's this story in the Old Testament that is amazing where Elisha and his servant— Oh, man. I, w- I was so close to remembering his name. I'll bet Kevin Gahazi. knows. Gahazi. I knew Kevin would know his name was man. Gahazi. That's solid. That's solid. I, Everybody throw I'm a impressed, like for that. man. No, I'm seriously impressed right now. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Gahazi blows it later, by the way, in the story about Naaman and the um the leprosy. Oh, you're going to drop it like
1: a Naaman? You can't just say Naaman?
0: No, it's that's what you say Naaman. Um, <laughs> Baal, Naaman. It's not Michael. It's Michael. Michael. Look, I'm sorry, my bad. I didn't mean to pronounce the Hebrew correctly. The, um, it's not even a Hebrew name, first of all. So, okay. All of my petty attempts to sound smart aside, the point of the story is that there's a this, the armies of um, Assyria have surrounded Elisha and Gehazi and it looks like they are done for. The yep. king wants to kill him. He's like, we're gonna take this guy out. And so there's an army surrounding him and um, Gehazi is terrified. He's like, yeah. what's dying? gonna happen to us? We're gonna die. And Elisha prays and he says, let Gehazi see what's really going on yeah. here. And all of a sudden Gehazi can see that around the army of Assyria is a massive army of angels, these angels. chariots of fire. So there's a overwhelming host of spiritual beings that are there to defend them. Yes. And what happens is, it's so cool. God strikes the Assyrian soldiers blind. Yeah. And Elisha leads them to Jerusalem or not Jerusalem, but to Judah yes. and they get their sight restored and instead of killing them, they like feed them and take care of them. But the bad
1: guys wake up and they're like, I'm not wake up their eyes open and they're like, we're, we're dude, we're dead. And then it's really, it's a prophetic kind of foreshadow of, of loving, like loving you. They feed the enemies.
0: Yeah. Feed them and send them back. Yeah. And so there's this, they come to kill them. God defends them. They feed them and send them out. Very powerful moment. But that, that image is uh, for you when you are feeling discouraged, when you're feeling afraid, when you feel like you're under attack spiritually, that image of, if only Gehazi could see yeah, that around the army of your enemies is a much greater, infinitely yes. more powerful army of God's spiritual people to defend and protect you. Um, and so that's a, that's a, just a powerful, helpful spiritual reality that has definitely given me comfort in times when I'm feeling like there's, there is spiritual warfare going on in my own life. Um, so props to Kevin for knowing Gehazi's name whatever the opposite of props are for me for um, pronouncing name and name correctly. Good. It's still good. And I was uh, impressed you had
1: a, you got a like because I'd have been like Assyria Babylon. I'm yeah. going
0: to be honest with you. I'm not 100% sure that it's not Syria. Those two, it's either Assyria okay. or Syria. Um, and in fact, I'm going to bet money it's Syria. So hey, next week, Dan Kimball will be here. Join us for that. We're excited. Thanks so much for being here. See you next week. I'm going to find out right now.